Hello everyone and welcome back to Genderator. My apologies for going dark for a little while. My season two finale was recorded in November and was scheduled to post in the new year. But in January, my husband was diagnosed with a relatively rare form of blood cancer. Our lives came to an abrupt halt. After spending 40 days in the hospital, we emerged to find a very different world. COVID-19 restrictions were ramping up. As we tried to get used to our own new normal, we had that surreal layer of uncertainty that everyone else was grappling with. I've finally been able to come up for air and continue working on Genderator. The following is an amazing interview with Dottie Gallagher, President and CEO of the Buffalo-Niagara Partnership, the area's regional chamber of commerce and privately funded economic development organization. We discuss their collaborative efforts with regional leaders to create the architecture needed to support truly inclusive workplaces. They're doing the deep, progressive work it takes to combine workforce development and racial equity. Though not COVID-related, I decided to go ahead and post this interview for a couple reasons. First, it doesn't hurt to have more shows to choose from to give folks a break from the regular news cycle. And second, this interview is a very positive reminder of the great inclusion work that's being done. It's easy to backslide during these extreme times of uncertainty and heightened stress. For example, some would like to brand COVID-19 with a cruel, racially insensitive, and unscientific name. When we stay mindful of our core values, we find the strength we need to thwart fear, the wisdom to stave off panic, and our reservoir of compassion to help others. Lastly, a note about my husband. Cancer sucks, and there's no other way of saying it. He's doing okay right now. For two people who typically live on fast forward, we have been forced to accept the one day at a time approach to our lives. We really cherish the good days together and brace for the bad ones. We have a wonderful support system all around us from our incredible healthcare team to our family and friends. We're just gonna keep fighting. That's all we know how to do. I'm wishing all of you good health. Take good care of yourselves and each other. Now, without further ado, it gives me great pleasure to present my interview with Dottie Gallagher. Dottie Gallagher, thanks so much for joining me on Genderator. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. This morning, I listened to the PSA that Buffalo ran uh, a number of years ago. Do you remember the song, Buffalo's Got a Spirit, oh, Talking Proud? Yes. <laughs> Yes. I couldn't get over. Do you know how old that song, that PSA, it that is, song is? Uh, it's from the 70s. I know yeah, that. Yeah. yeah. It was, I think it said 1980. So right square okay. in All that right. turning point, I yeah. think, was I 11 or 12 years old at that point? Yeah. That's all we could do was talk proud at that time. There's really not much to be proud of. So, <laughs> and, and a lot has changed since then. Changed. And since the 80s and certainly since you've uh, taken over here at the Buffalo Niagara Partnership. And What year was that? When did you take it's over? It's been six years. So mm-hmm. uh, I don't, so what is that? Yeah. 12, 13, somewhere in there. Yeah, yes, it's, that's it's right. I can't remember my life before it. It's an all-consuming <laughs> job. So, yeah. Were you at the visitor center? For a couple of years before that, I was president of, uh, uh, what, when I started, it was called the Convention of Visitors Bureau, but we rebranded it to Visit Buffalo Niagara. Mm-hmm. And then for 15 years before that, I was with the Buffalo News. So, uh, um, yeah, I've been, I've been on the planet for a long time. Yeah, yeah. So did you grow up here in Buffalo? I was born here. Yeah. And my, my mom was from New York City and my dad uh, was from here. Mm-hmm. And um, after they married, 
when they were very young. Mm-hmm. Uh, my father got a job as a cop in New York City, so I spent many, many years uh, in Queens mm-hmm. until middle school we moved back here. But Buffalo's always been home. Mm-hmm. My dad uh, was the oldest of 10 uh, kids, South Buffalo Irish, and mm-hmm. so I spent every summer and a reclamation project coming back to Buffalo for at least a month to hang out with my aunts and uncles who were all around my age. So, uh, so I have you know long, deep, deep ties here. That's so interesting because while I was working in New York, one of my favorite places to be was Queens. And I always said to my husband, if we ever moved to New York City, I'd want to live in Queens because Queens reminds me most of Buffalo. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah. It's so funny. I feel like my whole childhood and life was, I almost lived in both places kind Mm -hmm. of, you know. And when we moved back here, um, which was when I was in middle school. Uh, we actually first moved to Batavia. Mm-hmm. Uh, my father got a job there, and then we came, eventually came back to Buffalo which a couple of years later. My father didn't want to live near his brothers and sisters, so we moved to North Buffalo. So I always make this <laughs> joke, I have dual citizenship on both sides of the Peace Bridge, North and South Buffalo. Because <laughs> <laughs> I have so many South Buffalo friends and North Buffalo friends. So, yeah. What are some of your favorite memories of Buffalo growing up? You know, I um, I absolutely loved spending time at my grandparents' house. They lived right on uh, Newman Place, which uh, faced Cass Park. So, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. we would swim at Cass Park mm-hmm. and, you know, watch the basketball courts mm-hmm. and, you know, just walk up and down Seneca Street. And at that time, it was a really vibrant community. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's coming back now, thanks mm-hmm. to Jake Schneider and some other folks that are redeveloping Seneca Street. But um, at that time, you know, there was a lot of retail mm-hmm. and... Uh, just a lot of neighborhood and I just felt there was such a sense of belonging there mm-hmm. that I just really those are my favorite memories are once a year um, my, my grandfather had 10 kids and, and I was the first grandchild but once a year we would go up to Cradle, uh, Cradle Beach, Crystal Beach yes. um, with our report cards <laughs> and uh, you know ride the rides at Crystal Beach and that was just, you know better than going to Disney World yeah you know? and uh, yes. so I those are really fun memories yeah, I remember that old uh, wooden uh, uh, roller coaster. Yes, <laughs> I was always too chicken to ride it till many many years later. And uh, but uh, yeah, it's uh, those are fun fun memories. And Loganberry isn't Loganberry from Crystal Beach? I always thought Loganberry was uh, something that everybody had. It's I didn't a, no, it's realize a Buffalo it was a thing, but I don't know if it came from Crystal Beach. I know it's a Buffalo thing, mm-hmm. but the big Crystal Beach claim to fame were those suckers. They had you know these lollipops that were huge and all different flavors and you know they'd cut your mouth up really good <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so the cinnamon was my favorite and, uh, so uh you know the, there's just so many things about that time that was really really fun that's fantastic so what has changed in the last six years i know when the new administration came in when governor cuomo came in there was a lot of talk about the buffalo billion and a lot of things changing at the harbor what are some of the major changes that you've seen since you've been the head of the buffalo niagara Partnership? well you know that's a great question i think so much has changed in the community and the governor certainly has been a big driver of that but i think more um more important than the money was really the effort around putting together the plan mm-hmm. and getting the UB Regional Institute involved. And uh, that's really why we got the Buffalo Billion, because through that regional economic development uh, planning, uh, our region was so far ahead because we had the expertise of UBRI mm-hmm. really um, helping create a plan that was rooted in data and really was mm-hmm. mindful. I have to say, going through that process mm-hmm. was like one of the most painful experiences in my career because... Mm-hmm. 
uh, you know, at the time I was on the tourism subgroup when it started, mm-hmm. and uh, and it was they wanted a lot of voices at the table, mm-hmm. and people who knew stuff and people who didn't know stuff, and it mm-hmm. was just and, you know when I felt like I knew stuff, it was frustrating, but mm-hmm. in the end it was so smart because. Mm-hmm. By the time we got the plan, which is now, which is at the time called the Plan for Prosperity, but people call it the Buffalo Billion Plan, um, it w- everybody really bought into it. So mm-hmm. I would say, sort of prior to that process and after that process, prior to that process, people would argue about what should we do to save the economy, mm-hmm. and after that process, people now argue about how do we do it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So you know, the the, mm-hmm. the the strategies are super uh, well thought out and sound, you know. And I, you know, tradable sectors and fostering a spirit of entrepreneurship and and you know working on our infrastructure and and so many of the of the of the strategies uh, just make a lot of sense mm-hmm. and I think really brought the community together. So uh, that has been big, uh, I think, to have a regional plan that we can all lean into, mm-hmm. and certainly we start to see the fruits of it. Now. Mm-hmm. And some of those fruits are well, canal side. I mean, yes. you know, access to the waterfront. If you know, yeah. if you had. If you had a million dollars for every waterfront plan that was ever done, you'd be a billionaire probably. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, really that, um, and again, that was citizen input with, uh, uh, you know, people saying, you know, better, cheaper, faster. Like, mm-hmm. we don't need, we don't need, um, what was it, Bass Pro, you mm-hmm. know, we, oh, we, I need, remember we need that access. Right. And, and I just think listening to the public and really iterating uh, access to the waterfront, that's big. You know, there's been billions of dollars of development with the medical campus. Mm-hmm. UB moving downtown has been a huge driver. Mm-hmm. Um, the active, uh, in Buffalo, the active uh, rehabilitation of a lot of vacant uh, buildings mm-hmm. uh, and really, and that with the partnership actually uh, years ago, this predates my time here. Uh, worked with the city to put together what was called the Buffalo Building Reuse Plan, which basically did this analysis that showed hundreds of thousands of square feet of empty space and empty buildings, and HSBC announced that they were leaving the tower, right. uh, and uh, which was going to flood much more commercial space, and oh my God, what are we going to do? And it was really the partnership and the mayor together put together this plan to really actively develop those buildings for residential use. Mm -hmm. And I'm super proud of that work and um, the uh, implementation has been so extraordinarily successful. I mean, downtown residency is up about 10%, Mm -hmm. uh, but what's most exciting is when you look at who's living downtown Mm -hmm. in these buildings, uh, we we have a middle class living downtown we didn't have before. You know, it was extremely rich people living on the waterfront and extremely poor people living in Section Eight housing. And now you've got you know you know the fifty to one hundred thousand uh, dollar cohorts exist in downtown Buffalo, and did so uh, by not decreasing the amount of diversity down here. Mm-hmm. There are unfortunately the same number of people who uh, make less than twenty five thousand today as there was then, but we've increased the segments and all the other uh, cohorts. Mm-hmm. So we have a neighborhood now. Yes. I mean, we're not, it's not done, mm-hmm. but I, you know, it's definitely, you know, d- definitely better. And I think yeah. what's happening with M&T now mm-hmm. and what's happening at the Seneca, Ta- Seneca One, uh, you know, is a game changer for, for what's ha- I'm sorry, what's happening? At so M&T announced that they're uh, hiring 1,400 uh, technologists to help transform their business. Four hundred of them are people that are being transferred within M and T, but they're going to hire a thousand new jobs, and they're uh, they're going to put them into the one Seneca Tower, 
And that place is also, 42 North is moving there. Great. So it's really becoming sort of a technology hub. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it just has come full circle, the, the value of that building in mm-hmm. downtown. It's the, it's the tallest structure in, in all mm-hmm. of the city. So, um, you know, just really, really exciting. So in, in the M&T uh, plans, and it's not just M&T, it'll impact a lot of businesses, uh, you know, live, work, play, mm-hmm. um, neighborhoods are what, young people who are in that space want mm-hmm. and we're kind of got a head start based on the work that's already been done so it's a super exciting time i i feel like you know we could get downtown finished you know I've, yeah i've always had this maybe disproportional soft spot for downtown um buffalo i um in the uh, uh late 80s i worked for buffalo place mm-hmm. um, the downtown um, development authority mm-hmm. and that was a couple of years after they put the pedestrian wall in, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. you know where the train is now, yeah. and uh, I just watched the decline of downtown Buffalo. Mm-hmm. You know, and it wasn't just that, but also, you know, what has happened with retail, just mm-hmm. in general, and, mm-hmm. and its role in downtown, etc. Uh, just watching downtown really, uh, you know, to some degree fall apart, and now to be here and watch it come back to life, and now that transit line is playing such a key role in our redevelopment. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just a super exciting time. So I really feel like between what happened with the Buffalo Building Reuse Project and what's happening with M&T and mm-hmm. finishing cars on Main Street, mm-hmm. we've kind of reconstructed a vibrant downtown neighborhood and mm-hmm. can really put it over the top and I can stop worrying about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's so exciting. Different I mean, I remember ways. growing up here and going to the Broadway market. And yeah. My prom dress was made by a seamstress, a Polish seamstress who was a block away from the Broadway wow market and that was the time when when buffalo was was struggling you know and declining and to see it rise like a phoenix from the ashes phoenix from the ashes has been amazing yeah just it's really exciting what's happening now uh, on the east side i think uh with the northland uh project not just the workforce training center but really the redevelopment of that neighborhood uh and um the governor's latest uh, investment, about $60 million into east side um, corridors, uh, will be, I think, transformational there as well. So, you know, a lot of the neighborhoods have come back. I think, you know, Hurdle, the Hurdle area, mm-hmm. North Buffalo is hot, and mm-hmm. the Elmwood Village is hot. South Buffalo is, you know, probably lagging a little behind, but I think there's signs of life there. And now mm-hmm. this investment in the east side really, really, I think, is constructing. Uh, you know, a better city center. And, and honestly, that's, you know, that's what we really need to grow as a region is mm-hmm. to make sure that, you know, the center of our region is, has the density it needs to be successful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is a good transition to start talking about uh, economic inclusion. Yeah. And uh, based on what I've read from the Buffalo Niagara Partnership, you have been doing a lot of work. You're very conscious of, of um including everyone. You said earlier, you know, a lot of voices, a lot of stakeholders at the table, um, looking at how the city is changing and being revitalized and making sure everybody is included in in the opportunities that are available uh, and coming. And the need, I think, juxtaposed against what your employers are are demanding for employees. Has that been a struggle? Well, first of all, I think, you know, it is the... uh, it is the major hurdle we need to cross in this community is, is dealing with the issues of segregation and mm-hmm. racial inequity in our community. And 
a lot of the work that has really been done by the Community Foundation around, uh, and I, I'm privileged to serve on the Racial Equity Roundtable to really look at, you know, what has happened here. I mean, Buffalo, uh, and when I say Buffalo now, I'm really talking sort of regionally, but we have a, um, you know, a 90% isolation index in Buffalo, which is incredibly high. What does what, that mean? I'm sorry. Means, yeah, what that means is that you, if you live here or you're working in Buffalo, you only have a 1 in 10 chance of having uh, a meaningful interaction with a person of color. Mm-hmm. So we are so segregated still. Mm-hmm. Um, it goes back to, you know, uh, redlining, and, and it's got it's got roots in, in really um, policies that were developed uh, mm-hmm. really after World War II and before, even before World War II, and um, and that we're living with it. Mm-hmm. And so we have a higher than average poverty rate. We have lower than average workforce participation rate. We have educational attainment in the in the uh, in the in the categories of people of color that is not where uh, Caucasian people are, mm-hmm. we got to bridge those gaps in order to have a complete uh, community. Mm-hmm. And the great news about that is I think there's a, um, and this I've seen for sure in the past five years, and a growing um, knowledge, I'm not even going to call it an understanding, but a knowledge that uh, diverse workforces are, are better for business, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So we're not dragging people along in yeah. this. To, to give you a perspective, uh, we ask the question, and we do a member survey every year of our members. And our members, by the way, you know, it's a couple thousand businesses that are both profit and not-for-profit employers of all, all kinds, t- sizes, and, and, and uh, industries. And we, so we do this member survey every year, and it informs our work. You know, mm-hmm. what, what do you want us to work on, basically, mm-hmm. our membership work? And um, about four years ago, 25% of our employers told us they had difficulty in achieving a diverse workforce. Mm-hmm. And this year's survey, which is actually going to be released within the next couple of weeks, 65% of our employers have told us this is a priority and an issue for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and workforce um, has jumped from the number three concern to the number one concern of employers. So this is sort of a confluence of opportunity as mm-hmm. I would describe it mm-hmm. um, and how do we figure out how to create workplaces that have inclusive cultures so with this history of segregation and sort of the aging workforce we have here that's you know very I'm going to say um, less gender diverse than it needs to be and, and certainly more Caucasian than it needs yeah. to be in terms of, of, of leadership um, how do we create inclusive cultures where people want to work and uh, the, those force and employers are sort of all hands up, like, t- tell me how to do this, teach me how to do this, mm-hmm. and which has been great. Mm-hmm. And so between the work that the Community Foundation is doing um, in, in things like uh, neighborhood safety and uh, reentry for returning citizens and some of the real sort of substantive um, systemic uh, challenges that we have to address, Simultaneously, we are our our lane in this space is is helping those employers who have raised their hand develop more inclusive cultures through technical assistance is how I would describe it. Mm-hmm. So they have to know they want to do it, mm-hmm. and um, and then we're we're working to do that. So so our to give you a sort of a perspective on that over the past I would say year, uh, if you look at all of the expenses of our organization, how do we spend our money? Mm-hmm. Uh, full 25% of our um, our budget 
goes now is pointed towards talent, workforce, and diversity. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a sea change for us. Yeah. But that's where our, our employers need us to be, so that's, yes. where, that's where we're going. That's incredible. That The numbers are, are amazing. The, the number of people who are interested in, in recognizing that they have an issue and wanting to change and the amount of resources that you're dedicating to it as a partnership, but as a, it sounds like collaborative totally throughout, the, throughout the city. Well, and I will say, you know, so we started um, a, a, um, a collective impact effort about uh, five years ago. Um, it started out as a committee of our board mm -hmm. uh, to sort of say, where should employers be in this workforce development space? Like, where do we belong? Mm -hmm. And we went through a, a learning, a, about a, a year-long learning uh, exercise where we interviewed a lot of workforce intermediaries and programs and said, where can we fit? Where can we add value, you know? And in the end of this year-long, and we looked at best practices elsewhere. Mm -hmm. At the end of this year-long study, we, we basically said, you know what, there's no one thing we can do that's going to make a meaningful difference here. Mm -hmm. Our highest value would be to convene a community conversation about how to make the system work better. Mm -hmm. Like we have a lot of people of influence. We have, we, you know, we know how to do that. We know, mm -hmm. We're in the convening and collaboration business, and so we started uh, uh, basically a coalition of the willing, mm -hmm. and now, which now is called now it's called uh, it's had a couple of names. Now it's called Employee Buffalo Niagara. Mm -hmm. um, it has about almost two hundred people in it, mm -hmm. and we've got. Our efforts in Employee Buffalo Niagara are about uh, making the workforce system work better, uh, really uh, to create a more inclusive workforce, and to really point our efforts to the working poor. Mm -hmm. Because if you look at the data here, which I just mentioned earlier, so we have lower than average workforce participation rate, higher than average poverty, and we have 137,000 people who in a fairly recent labor market study told us they were underemployed, meaning they had higher level skill than they could get a job in. Mm -hmm. uh, that so take that dynamic and marry it with the dynamic that you have employers saying, I, I just need someone who knows how to come to work and I'll train them how to do a job. And you say, well, why is this disconnected? Right? Mm -hmm. Why can't this, this seems so obvious, mm -hmm. right? And, uh, but what the reality is, is that people right now who are, uh, let's say, working uh, multiple minimum wage jobs, let's say, and are uh, taking advantage of the public benefits they should, you know, things like daycare subsidies and, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, TANF and food stamps mm -hmm. and you know, housing assistance and all those things, if you're a work, uh, poor person or a working poor person, you can take advantage of, they get trapped. Mm -hmm. Because if you if you are taking those if you have those benefits to sort of create financial stability in your life, the government caps how much you can earn before you lose those benefits. Mm -hmm. So it gets manifested in, in an employer level where an employer let's say wants to promote somebody mm -hmm. or wants to give someone overtime or even give them a raise and they'll say I can't take that because I'm going to lose this over here. Oh, like that's terrible. terrible. And, and and so this is the unintended consequences, right? Mm -hmm. So we've created this now now we buffalo this is a federal problem. Mm -hmm. How do we how do we stem this gap because if people can't what I call cross the bridge to prosperity, they're trapped in this mm -hmm. in this very challenging life to manage all of that. You know, mm -hmm. uh, I don't know who said this, but you know, being poor is a full time job, right? Mm -hmm. So how do we? And I all I see when I look at that is all that talent that we aren't going to, all that innovation, all that talent mm -hmm. that society is missing out on because mm -hmm. those people are not able to 
um, get more engaged in opportunities. Mm -hmm. So really trying to unwrap that mm -hmm. and really trying to help uh, figure out how we can do things a little differently. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the strategies, for example, is uh, in Employee Buffalo Niagara is we have a subcommittee called Braided Funding. Mm -hmm. um, we haven't gotten very far yet, but <laughs> the notion is a noble notion, meaning um, there's about $40 million in workforce development money that is public that is in the system here, whether it's through the Workforce Investment Board, Department of Social Services, whatever, federal programs, dislocated workers, etc. It's about $40 million. And employers spend about $40 million in, in training and development. Mm -hmm. So how do you get those funds to work better together? Mm -hmm. Because the public funds have a lot of uh, restrictions, right. and the private funds don't, mm -hmm. right? So how do we, how do we, how do we uh, weave an opportunity that helps people cross that bridge? We haven't figured it out yet. Mm -hmm. But we're dealing with things with, like the benefits cliff, like how can we begin to even advocate federally on how to begin to change those things? Because mm -hmm. it's a real issue. I mean, yes. and right and right here, just so you know, we've got what we call the gray tsunami coming. 25% of our workforce is going to be eligible for retirement in seven, in seven to 10 years. Yeah. So this is not just a moral imperative. Like if we don't have people that are able and ready to take these jobs, these jobs will leave our region mm -hmm. and we will be much worse off than we are today. So mm -hmm. there's a lot going on, wow. you know, a lot going on. That's so many moving parts I know. to figure. <laughs> yeah. But what I love is, is 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 first of all the fact that you know it inside and out, and it's just very clear, and just yeah. how much energy that you have invested in this, and how you're clearly working on this constantly. You know, I, I can just see it in your body language. This yeah. is something that's really well, it's a conundrum. Important, you know, it really, I mean, on every level of my being, it, it, you know, and, and I would say it's really true of many of the people I work with here at the partnership, you know, we are in the economic development business, right? Yes. And, you know, uh, if you don't have people working mm -hmm. uh, in the private sector, mm -hmm. uh, you know, those other jobs, taxpayers are paying for, mm -hmm. right? So how, how we have to do everything we can Mm -hmm. to make sure that we keep those jobs here. So that's, you know, okay, that's my job, right? Yes. But in this region, if we don't address these other issues, we can't meet that other goal either. So right. it's be, so it's there's no reason why, I mean, to me it's this puzzle that fits together perfectly. Mm -hmm. And we can't, we can't, uh, we have to work together to try to solve the problem. And, mm -hmm. um, and, and we're lucky in Buffalo, believe it or not, because of the Community Foundation in particular, you know, they started the racial equity work about the same time as we started talking about employee. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of crossover, right? Mm -hmm. It's really hard for someone to go to work full time if they've got super complicated life, health issues, mm -hmm. um, they don't have daycare. I mean, their lives, if their lives are so complicated, they can't do that. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, how, do, how, do we, how do we solve all those problems, right? Yeah. And so having two collective impact efforts that are really um, um, being led by two leading organizations in the community uh, at the same time in parallel mm -hmm. uh, and pledging to work together. You know, we found communities that are working on the workforce stuff and we found communities that are working on the racial equity stuff. We haven't found a community yet mm -hmm. that is doing them um, symbiotically. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and we're getting a lot of attention nationally and mm -hmm. a lot of funding mm -hmm. actually from, uh, from philanthropy nationally mm -hmm about the work that we are that we are attempting to do here in Buffalo. And we're nowhere near doing it. I mean, right. we're in the still in the right. figuring it out stage. But 
Well, that's, I mean, you're light years ahead of so many others. Oh, yeah. You know, just yeah. to be able to surface those those really difficult, complex, uncomfortable problems. Because those complex problems are just uncomfortable for everybody. And it's much easier to just, you know, sort of say it's somebody else's issue, yeah. not your issue. But the fact that you've captured it and the collaborative spirit that I'm seeing, you know, from sort of the outside looking in yeah, yeah, Buffalo yeah. Mm-hmm. is is really quite impressive it's exciting and I you know I'm uh, I'm thrilled to be to be a, to be a part of it um, and I, I can't you know I will tell you so much of this uh, the particularly around the inclusion issues we can thank this next generation mm-hmm. uh, for really pushing on this as mm-hmm. well because employers understand they have to retain young professional talent mm-hmm. uh, so even if they don't get it on the inclusion side mm-hmm. they get it that their young professionals think it's important Right? Yes. Right. So it's sort of, I, I describe it as sort of a confluence of opportunity, right? All sides are pushing towards the same end goal. Mm-hmm. And now we're just really trying to help people catch up how you do it. And this is hard work. I mm-hmm. mean, as you said, yes. it's hard work. Yes. And, it's, and it doesn't take place overnight. One of my favorite phrases that one of my interviewees said is, you, you can't microwave diversity. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it takes, it takes, you have to be dedicated and committed to that hard work over a long period of time. Well, I think in Buffalo, you know, this isolation index that I mentioned and sort of the, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, sort of naturally, natural way our community has been um, segregated or uh, maybe unnaturally way, unnatural way, but it was segregated. Um, it's easy, uh, it's easy to ignore it mm-hmm. if you are a person who is white and mm-hmm. you are walking around all day with your privilege. Mm-hmm. It's easy to not see it. Yes. Right, you don't see it. You know, as opposed to uh, bigger cities that are far more integrated, right. that you you know you you do at least see it. So I think you know one of the big um, things that we've done in collaboration with the community foundation is that all of the diversity work that we've done so far at the partnership, which is a diver- we started with a diversity and inclusion council, and we're launching a series of programs from 2020, because mm-hmm. uh, the council has sort of, you know, what we learned through the council is not everyone's in the same place, and we have to create spaces where to be where people are on their own journey. But mm-hmm. all the, every, uh, we've required uh, any company that wants to be involved in any of our councils or programming to go through the racial equity impact training. Mm-hmm. Because you have to mm-hmm. understand the history of mm-hmm. sort of how we got here, mm-hmm. and also what you know to really challenge yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, if you say, if you say, um, well, I'm not a racist, therefore, right. you know, mm-hmm. whatever. Right. That's not the same as understanding the the barriers that exist for people of color mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. you don't have them, mm-hmm. right? Yes. You know, so it's learning what you have yeah. is part of this process. Learning. You know, I always, uh, you know, felt, you know, I, you know, I paid my own through, through high school and college, uh, you know, and I've worked very hard, and I, you know, I've achieved more than I ever thought in my own career, and I always thought, well, you know, this is, you know, yay me, right? But I now look at that and understand that, you know, if I was a black or brown person, what I have been able to do was I was able to accomplish. I'm not so sure, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have had the access that I've had and, mm-hmm. and the connections that my family has that have just yes. natural privilege that we don't think about. Right. So I think this is part of uh, us fixing this problem is helping people get on their own journey of understanding. So mm-hmm. as, as hard as that is to sort of say we got to start with the individual, yeah. uh, you know, I yeah. don't see any other way. Right. You know, 
to, right. to really do it. So. No, I agree with you. Have you looked at any other communities as models for this work? We have, actually. So, again, the Community Foundation is really on the leading edge of this, and um, uh, we, as I mentioned to you earlier, we've seen people that are doing sort of uh, some racial equity work, and we've seen people doing this workforce work, but we haven't seen it come together. So the workforce work, for example, uh, where we... Um, we are seeing a lot of communities now trying to incorporate inclusion into their workforce mm -hmm. efforts. We sort of started with it here. Yes. But honestly, uh, you know, I was asked to go present, this is uh, last year, I think maybe last year, or the year before, I can't remember now, um, to go to Walmart uh, in Bentonville uh, because the Kellogg Foundation was asked at their, their own internal diversity and inclusion event for Walmart, and um, you know the president of Walmart was there, and president of Pepsi, and the president of so and so, and it was broadcast all over you know the Walmart universe, <laughs> and um, and the Kellogg Foundation uh, is funding some of the work through the Community Foundation, and the Kellogg Foundation was asked to bring the community with them that they felt was doing the most cutting edge work in this space and Kellogg chose us. Because again, some of the work that we're doing with the private sector really is ahead of the curve mm -hmm. uh, from, from other places. So we're proud of that. Yes, that's incredible. Yeah, Congratulations. Yeah. yeah, well, it's not done yet. Getting, you know. <laughs> yeah, but just the, just the amount of um, awareness, self-awareness, is a community self-awareness and uh, collaboration and architecture that you're putting in place. Again, that's foundational to what you're going to be building on over the course of the next few years. Just as much as it took to create the barriers, right. and the, oh, the, yeah. what is it, the 90.1% index, right, right. that took a long time to create. Now you're just sort of right. deconstructing that and creating something new. Well, the bottom line is no amount of training that we can go through as an individual or as a community is going to make a meaningful difference if we can't remove some of the policy and systems that are really inadvertently standing in the way. And I will tell you at the partnership, you know, uh, I'm embarrassed to admit this, but uh, we no longer have a person of color even working on our staff. Mm -hmm. And we and we are really struggling with that because, mm -hmm. you know, how do we stand up this work yeah. and not have it in our own shop, right? Yeah. So so we, we're still doing our work. Like, how is our brand getting in the way of getting people to come work for us? Yes, uh, Or, right. you know, right. maybe it's our hiring practices. Mm -hmm. So it's really even looking internally. So, so I guess what I'm saying is that the, the systems uh, that are set up sometimes are really, um, you know, are not, I don't think are intentionally uh, creating exclusion, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, that's really, that's the work. It's the mm -hmm. policy work, mm -hmm. it's the how you do your work, mm -hmm. that that's what, what's gonna change, mm -hmm. you know, eventually change things. So uh, we have a lot of work to do in this the Partnerships, Diversity, and Inclusion Council, that is uh, foundational to, you said you're going to have some programming next year. But, right. So the council, is that uh, a resource for your members? So the Diversity and Inclusion Council was born out of the work that the Racial Equity uh, Roundtable is doing in the sense that um, I'm sitting at the table there, right, uh, working with other people from all different fields and saying, well, how are we going to bring this knowledge to employers. Mm -hmm. And the logical place to do that is through the chamber, 
So at that time, which now goes two years ago, I was like, well, we have to do it, at least kick it off the way we do things. So we have a manufacturer's council. We had a Can-Am council. Mm -hmm. That's how we do our work, right? Mm -hmm. That's how we organize our members. So we said, okay, let's organize. Mm -hmm. We know how to do that. Mm -hmm. We know how to pay for that kind of work. we got to sell a sponsorship. we got to do this. Mm -hmm. We know we need a council manager. Like, that's, you know, it's like just how we how we execute, right? Mm -hmm. So we launched this council. Um, 65 businesses um, signed on. They all went through the racial equity impact training before they could sit on the council. And uh, the council uh, work is uh, four meetings a year. They develop their own plan of work, and they come out with an agenda, and they do it. And we hire an expert in residence to guide the work. Mm -hmm. um, so in this case, the expert in residence was a, a group called... Um, why can't I find their name in my head? Inspire Global Resources to help us okay. um, have expert uh, mm -hmm. facilitation. Mm -hmm. um, they put together a, a work plan of how businesses could get started that we're going to make available to the full community, like you know, sort of the things that you can do. Um, but what we learned through this, as I mentioned, is you've got companies that have chief diversity officers, right, mm -hmm. who are really neck deep into this work, and you've got people saying, "I know I need to do this, but..." I don't know anything, mm -hmm. where do I start? Mm -hmm. And you've got people that are, I'm gonna call them dabblers, mm -hmm. right? So you got this whole continuum. Mm -hmm. And so the council had this whole continuum of people in it. And as new people came onto the council, um, this work requires a lot of trust. Mm -hmm. So as new people came into the council, it would the group would roll back, right? Yes. Had to yeah. the, and it was just, it, so what we learned was the way we do this work isn't gonna work yeah. in this space, okay? <laughs> so we gotta do something different. <laughs> And, but the members of the council were super clear on what their expectations were. Mm -hmm. And we held our first diversity and inclusion summit last year. We had mm -hmm. 300 people come. And those people were very clear about the kind of assistance they wanted. Mm -hmm. So we took all that input and said, okay, let's create something that serves all of these, uh, you know, serves all of these purposes. So what we've launched for next year, what we're launching in 2020 is a, a, a these are all working titles, uh, they haven't been really branded yet, but a diversity and inclusion academy. Mm -hmm. So it's a, uh, it's really intended for CEOs or chief HR, some policy making person mm -hmm. at a company, large or small, that really wants to just get started. Mm -hmm. They come in, they do, uh, they do the, the racial equity impact training, there's uncom unconscious bias training, and there's a few other things that they do and they end with a that they develop during the academy a um, a work plan for their own place of employment. So mm -hmm. again, wherever they start. So that's one thing that we're standing up, and we're talking to local experts who are going to teach it. We're kind okay. of putting the curriculum together, and we've actually hired some outside help to help us do that. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one thing, and that's what I would say is you know sort of the one hundred and one mm -hmm. uh, version. Then we are uh, creating a what we have done um, successfully an exchange program. So our exchange programs are peer-to-peer -peer learning networks that are small. It's only 15 people in each group, 15 to 17. They're industry exclusive. They are professional facilitation. They meet 12 times a year. But this table we're setting up are going to be for those chief diversity officers. So they have a place. Because mm -hmm. what, what we were finding with the chief diversity officers is they're doing a lot of teaching mm -hmm. of the people who are just getting started. But they need to learn themselves, right? Mm -hmm. so, so we're creating a table for them with some expert mm -hmm. help to help advance their work. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's happening. We're going to do another uh, summit, which people resoundingly said we needed to do. We'll bring in some national um, expert speakers. And we're looking at developing 
some sort of, I, I don't know whether to call it a survey or a self-assessment tool, we haven't quite figured out what it's going to be, mm-hmm. where businesses can kind of take a look at their own practices. Mm-hmm. Um, other communities like Cleveland, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, um, Cleveland. Uh, Philadelphia, um, some folks in Michigan have done it. But in those markets, it's been challenging to get enough people to commit to the survey, mm-hmm. um, to do it long enough to show a real difference. So we, we, we don't think that's going to work here. We're, mm-hmm. So we're trying to figure that out. Mm-hmm. So we've hired uh, someone from the Race Matters Institute to help us mm-hmm. figure out how do, we do, how do we do this so we can get more adoption. Mm-hmm. Because to have 10 people take it who already get it, doesn't yeah. Right. So that's the plan of work for 2020, and we'll see where that where that work takes us. And um, we're happy actually that some there are some national foundations that are going to fund uh, some of that work for us. Because if you were to look at this work on paper, I mean, you know, we would be losing our shirts doing it. Yeah. Now. Yeah. Um, right. So we've got some philanthropy that's going to support the experts. Yeah. So we're not making it up, and uh, it can be a real legit. Sort of program. So, this um, is this is about. next level work. Yeah. Oh, and I'll this tell you, is amazing. We this can't find anybody. Uh, we can't find any chamber. There is a community foundation in Wisconsin that does an academy. There's a Zenate Part Academy, and their academy is actually really directed to uh, the community. Mm-hmm. So, the, in this space, there's a lot of work that's directed to the community at large. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of work directed to employers, mm-hmm. right? Yes. And right. so. Um, and when I see, and some of the work that's directed to employers is, I'm going to call it um, more compliance oriented, mm-hmm. right? Yes. You should be blah, blah, right. blah. Right, yes. yes. And, you know, that's not where we're coming from. So the racial equity work has started with this real premise that says, we're not calling anybody out, we're inviting people in. Mm-hmm. So I'm not out to convert the unconverted. Mm-hmm. I'm I, There's plenty of people, 65% of our membership, yeah. who say this is a priority. Mm-hmm. Let's work with those folks. And let's 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 make sure that we're really listening to them, so that we can. I think of our role as sort of being uh, the co-op that organizes the work that a lot of work that a lot of organizations need to do. Mm-hmm. So and sort of helps them advance their work. So that's yeah. really that's where we see our lane. And we haven't found any chambers that are doing yeah. that. I haven't either. This is incredible. But you know, it's so important in this work. People get people get. Uh, and particularly people who have been in this space for a long time, and maybe it's, you know, it's uh, their frustration level is high because yeah. you know they feel like they're screaming from the mountaintops. Something that's obvious that nobody gets. I get that, mm-hmm. but um, uh, we we just really understand that if we, the formula that has worked for this organization since we were incorporated in 1844 as the Board of Trade has been, let's respond to what people who are connected to our organization need. Mm-hmm. Let's answer that. Mm-hmm. And we're just very fortunate that we have enough businesses for whom this is a priority mm-hmm. that I'm not selling anybody anything, Yes. right? Yeah. And we are really facilitating mm-hmm. and really uh, trying to, to, to bridge the gap. I'm not saying that racism doesn't still exist in this community. I'm not saying there aren't employers who don't get it. There are, but there are a lot that do. Mm -hmm. And quite honestly, the bottom line is this. If you can't create an inclusive culture, you're not going to have people want to work for you. Yes. And so it's, I don't care if you are, you know, you don't get it, you know, you better get it, right? So Mm -hmm. it's a business imperative that Mm -hmm. will, that is really, I think, help driving. And quite Mm -hmm. honestly, we're in such a hole here because of our history that we just have a lot to dig out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's not going to happen without it here. You know, we're not New York City. 
Yes. You know. Right. So right. Uh, so we have to we have to do the work. So you're either ahead of the wave or crushed by the wave. Right. I think right. you're ahead of the wave. Well, I hope so. <laughs> you know. I well, and I would say honestly, and I mean this with all sincerity. I think if, you know, all the things you talked about, I think the Regional Economic Development Plan, the work that UBRI has done, I think the work the Community Foundation has done, I think the work that we have done, this takes a long time. Mm-hmm. And um, and we, we have leadership involved in all of these things that really are committed, even when things don't work, you know, in employ, we've, we've, we've had some experiments that have failed. Mm-hmm. And we're very transparent about it mm-hmm. because... This whole thing is about systems change, which mm-hmm. nobody really wants to do because right. it takes a long time yeah. and it's not sexy, you know. Yeah. But I just don't see how else we do it, yeah. so we have to do it. Well, congratulations! It's don't congratulations yet, you know. I mean, <laughs> I hope we can have this conversation in five or six years, and we can really start to see the needle move. Yeah. You know, that would that would that really would be the that's what success is. Yeah. You know, right now, uh, right now we're. Uh, we don't deserve any credit for trying to fix a problem that has existed in this community for hundreds of years. We, mm-hmm. we just need to, this is our civic responsibility to advance the community, and that's what we got to do. Dottie, thank you so much for joining me. It's been great having oh, you. Thank you. Appreciate it. You've been listening to Genderator. Stay tuned for Season 3. I'll be interviewing guests who can provide their expertise on how to take care during these uncertain times. My lineup includes a career coach, mental health professional, and a financial planner. Thank you all for listening in. As always, you can contact me and join the conversation via my website, www.generator.com. That's generator with a J.